Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. On Thursday of this week, one of our interns, Daniel Scott, preached a message about the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower is about a preacher who opens up his mouth and the words that go out, they hit certain types of soil. The hard soil, the rocky soil, the good soil. The parable goes and teaches us about the condition of the heart and sometimes distraction will come, sometimes worry and fear will come. But then there is this good soil that the word will land upon and it will develop a, a, a yield of 30, 60, and 100 fold. And I pray this morning that that would happen for us, that our hearts would be tuned into what the Lord may have in store for us as we teach about the doctrine of grace. Oh, how wonderful is this doctrine. Let's pray. Father, this morning we give you this time. We pray that you would have your way. We pray that you would remove every distraction, every fear, every worry, God, that is in our life. We bring them here today. They're with us wherever we go, but we need to be reminded that your burden is light. So God, at this moment, I pray that you would seek every heart, that you would tune us into what you have to say, that you would help me teach about the doctrine of grace, for we need to know and understand this very well. God, we love you so very much. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the doctrine of grace will challenge your heart, it will consume your mind, and it will manifest through your actions. When you understand grace, your speech will change, your thoughts change, and your action follows. When we know and understand grace, something about grace, grace informs, it conforms, and it will transform the Christian life. And when I was 21, I went to church and I heard the gospel, and I heard the stories of Jesus. But when I went to church one Sunday morning, the gospel preacher got up, our preacher got up, and he talked about the prodigal son, and my eyes were open. For I was spiritually blind and trying to use religious activity to ease my guilt and shame in this life. But it was the doctrine of grace that changed it all for me. Paul David Tripp does this daily devotion. And in one of the devotions, he wrote about grace. And he wrote this. It will be on the screen because it's big. It says, this is what grace does. It rescues us from our spiritual blindness. It, it releases us from our bondage of, to our rationalism and materialism. Grace gives us the faith. To be utterly assured of what we cannot see, it frees us from refusing to believe in anything we cannot experience with our physical senses. But grace, oh, grace does much more. This grace connects us to the invisible one in an internal love relationship that fills us with joy we have never known before. And gives us rest of heart that we would have through impossible, even though impossible. And that grace is still rescuing us, still today is rescuing us, because we still tend to forget what's important, what is real, and what is true. We still tend to look to the physical world for our comfort. We still fail to remember in any given moments that we really do have a heavenly Father. Grace has done a wonderful thing for us and continues to do more and more. What is grace? How will we define grace this morning? Well, grace, the definition is grace is undeserved favor or merit. Grace is undeserved favor or merit. And in my life and in my practice of talking about grace, I often say, that, say, what, I say grace and then the definition. 
So we're talking about grace. You mean undeserved favor or merit? Oh, the grace of God, undeserved favor or merit. We have to remind ourselves, and I, I've learned in my own life that I have to remind myself of what the, uh, the definition of grace is because it is so hard for us as fallen, sinful, for our fallen and sinful minds and hearts to comprehend this. It's so hard. Grace is hard for so many because we want to believe or, or show to others that we have a part to play. And sometimes in our, our normal everyday to day life, we don't really think that much about grace because we, we seem to have everything under control. If our bank accounts are ready or are good, if our family is doing okay, we don't think about grace. And some of us want to think about adding something to salvation, that we had some merit to our salvation, that we had a part to play. And we love the equation, God plus me equals eternity, but that is not grace. I love how the, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman church, says it. He says in Romans 5, 6, you see just at the right time. I love that, right time. It was not on our time, it was on God's time in his sovereign plan. At that right time, when we were still powerless, when we were hopeless, when we were without favor, when we were out without merit, Christ did something. He died for us. You see, the perfect Savior went to the cross to make a way for grace to be applied to our accounts. A simple way to understand grace is to picture that you were caught in an act. You're guilty. You know it. They know it. You know the punishment. You know what it is. And maybe authorities are called and at that moment, fear begins to well up. I remember when I was a, a child, I, I stole something. I stole a chocolate bar from a, a store. I took it, and I got caught in like two seconds. Like, I must have been a bad thief. Like, I put it in my pocket, and I was like, oh, I'm caught. And they scared me. They, like, they brought me in a room. They said they were going to call the police. I was going to go to jail. Like, I, I remember that very well. I remember the fear that would grip my heart and and the shame, I still remember that moment. Guilt, how I felt guilty of having to go and call my parents and tell them that I was a thief. This grip, it grips your heart. And what you, when you're about to receive what you deserve, a substitute is made and the punishment that you should get is, is not applied. And what is applied is way more than you could ever think of or, even, or imagine. That's what grace is. But some of us can say, well, that's never going to happen to me. I'm not going to break the law. I know the rules. Police are not going to be called on me. I'm not going to have that situation. We're in that situation when it comes to our spiritual life. Our soul is guilty. We need a substitute. And that's where grace comes in. Grace comes from God. And in, by grace we are saved. And by grace we live. And by grace we understand the Heavenly Father. Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus, writes this in two, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace, or by the definition, it is, for, it is by grace, undeserved favor or merit, that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is a gift from God. Not by works so that no man can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Four things from this passage that grace teaches us. Grace is a gift from God. You cannot earn grace. You cannot buy grace. And for some of us, I'm going to break your, break your dream. You can't store up grace. 
You can't put it aside so that you can live the way you want and then go to the cookie jar of grace and bring it back out and apply it to the situation. Can't store it up. It is a gift from God. It is a gift that he will lavish on us when we walk to him, when we talk to him, and when we come to him with open hands and ask for him. So that's the first thing. Grace is a gift of God from that passage. Second thing, grace helps us understand God. Lots of people have a fear of God. Through the 70s and 80s and a little bit into the 90s, it was hell, fire, and brimstone. You better come to Jesus or you'll burn. I remember that sermon. I was terrified. I shaked a little bit. What do you mean burning? I don't like this. Okay, I want Jesus. That's not what grace does for us. Grace helps us to understand that we have a loving Father, caring, and who wants the best for us. And sometimes the best for us is waiting. Sometimes the best for us is struggling in a situation so that we will de- we'll go to God, that we will depend on God. Sometimes the best for us is discipline. For God disciplines those he loves. But grace helps us understand who God is. Third thing, grace changes the recipient. Grace shows us how far gone we are and helps us to see how God picks us up and he gives us new life and new coverings. Think of the fig leaves. Think of the the Garden of Eden. Grace needed not to be applied for they were in a perfect relationship. But then the serpent comes in and he tempts both Eve and Adam. And Eve falls for it and gives the fruit to her husband, Adam. And at that moment, their eyes were open. And what did they do? They hid themselves and they put fig leaves over them. And when God comes, he calls them into question. There are still consequences for our sins. But in that passage, in the first book, God shows grace. He takes the life of something, an animal, and he takes the skin of that animal and he removes their fig leaves and he covers them. Grace is a covering for us. It changes the way we live. And the last thing that grace does, it frees us to live our purpose. When we go back to the passage, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grace frees us to live our purpose. Grace reminds us because we are so forgetful that we are on mission. And that mission is to do the good works that were prepared in advance for us in eternity past. It is not the good works that we think up that we want to do when we have these grand, grand ideas that we want to go and proceed. That's not what grace is for. Grace is to help us live our purpose that God has designed for us. That's just the introduction. In our sermon today, Jesus is going to be the teacher. And he's going to teach us about grace. And he's going to shed some light on the beauty and the grandeur of grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. I cannot say it enough. I pray today, God, with all the distractions that have been happening this morning, I pray at this moment, at at this time, you would remove them. I've prayed it, and I'm praying it again. God, for so many of us have come in here today with baggage, with shame, with guilt, with religious activity, and we fully don't understand grace. And I pray that you would make it clear for us through Jesus' teaching, through Jesus' word, through your word, God, I pray this. In your holy and passionate name. Amen. While I'm going to be in the book of Luke today, Jesus is going to be instructing us from a parable. I'm going to be reading the parable, and then I'm going to be taking us through it. So Luke 15, I'm going to start at verse 1. 
Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners, get this, were all drawing near to hear him. Jesus was an amazing teacher. Even the religious leaders, even though they had wickedness in their heart, were gathering around to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, catch this, grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Right off the bat, being judged. So he told them this parable, a man, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he found it, he lay it on his shoulder, rejoicing, important key word there, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He goes on in verse 8, Or what a woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the whole house, seek diligently until she finds it. And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's stop there for a moment. In this scene, Jesus is speaking to two social classes. He's talking to the Pharisees and religious leaders, the elite teachers, and he's talking to sinners and tax collectors, those who would be considered, of, considered unworthy at that time. Jesus begins his monologue with three stories known in the Bible as parables. The first parable is about a shepherd, a character that everyone at that scene would have known of. They would have seen shepherds. Some of them might have been hired as shepherds. Shepherds were common. The crowd could relate to them. Everyone there would have known or seen shepherds moving their sheep from pasture to pasture. And Jesus shares about a sheep wandering off, leaving the 99 to find the one. The shepherd finds the sheep and rejoices and calls his friends together. It's party time. Everything is good until Jesus concludes the story with, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth, in the same way that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. That statement right there would begin to cause anger for the teachers of the law and hope to stir in the hearts of the sinners and tax collectors because Jesus right now is beginning to prime the pump to teach about his Father and show what grace is like. Grace is undeserved favor or merit. What is the great cause for the party seen in heaven? A sinner repenting. A powerful story. Please read it. Take some time to meditate on it. I'm not going to focus or exegete that passage right now. Jesus moves on to his second story about a woman who loses a coin. Another relatable story, not too controversial, unless you're picking up what Jesus is laying down here. The main character in this scene is a woman. For us today, we would skip right by that. But Jesus is using the woman in the story to show that God cares for women. It's not all about the religious elite. So now the women in the crowd are beginning to listen. What? There's a woman in this story. So a woman loses a coin and people lose things all the time. Yesterday I could not find my keys at all. I looked everywhere. Guess where they were? In my desk. Locked in the church. I needed the keys to get into the church. My house was a mess. I called my children. Come. Find the keys. We could not find them because they were not in the house. 
We lose things all the time. People lose things all the time. Everyone in the crowd could relate. But in this story, the coin that was lost was worth a day's pay. So it was financially important. So you could just imagine the murmurs in the crowd. A day's pay? Oh, I hope she finds it. I, you know what? I would search everything. I would light, ma- I would light the candles. I would look everywhere for that, for that coin. People could relate. And Jesus shares that the woman finds it, rejoices, party time, calls her friends. And in the first story, Jesus concludes with the line, rejoicing in heaven. But in this one, he, re- he concludes with this. There is rejoicing in the presence of, ang- of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Grace will be offered when one repents. Forgiveness will be offered when one repents. See, Jesus is teaching on the value of losing something that is important. For the religious leaders that were there, he's, he's taking a shot at them saying, all of the sheep are important. If one is gone, go look for it. He's also talking about something that is very valuable to most people, money. He says most people will, all people will, 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 will search to recover the lost money. Jesus is teaching on the value of losing Shepherds were often hired out. If you lose a sheep, you would have to pay for it. Jesus could be also teaching about sheep can get lost sometimes. Sometimes they keep their head down as they're grazing, and they're supposed to be with the group, and they're grazing, and they wander off, and it's the shepherd's responsibility to go find them. Can I tell you a crazy story? My wife and I one year went to Mexico, my first time ever going to a place like that. We went swimming. And you know I do not like swimming, and some of you might have heard this story before, but we are snorkeling in the ocean in a lagoon. I don't even like that word. It sounds dangerous. I got flip-flops the size of my leg on. Like, they were massive. I could hardly even walk. We get into the water, and we go as a crowd, and we're going out into the lagoon, and the ladies like, stay together, and I don't know how to swim well. So I'm going, and my wife is in front of me, and then... All of a sudden, I just kind of look around, and I'm in the ocean by myself. They went around a corner in this lagoon thing. I kept going straight. I just kept going. I look up. I can't see land. Fear happened. I was terrified. I gave up. I'm just going to be honest. I gave up. I just don't know which direction. I was fearful. Do I go? Do I keep going that way? Will I swim even farther? Which way do I go? Eventually, fear, I'm telling you the truth, I remember giving up and falling down. I'm thinking, do I just breathe or swallow the water? What do I do? (laughs) This is literally burned into my mind. I can see myself right now falling down with these giant, I can see the fins. I'm looking straight, but I can see the fins. They're so big. This woman comes and she grabs me and she picks me up. She brings me with her. She's literally swimming, and I'm like this. I'm looking up at the sky, and I can see the fins still. She brings me to the shore. I get up. I hug this lady. We're embracing. Laura's like, what are you doing? Her husband is, what are you doing? This woman saved my life. Sometimes sheep get lost. You have to go get them. Jesus is hitting the people where it hurts, the religious leaders on how they lead and the tax collectors and sinners about money. But what about the value of a human life? Jesus goes all in in this next 
parable about family, and I believe that this will relate to us very well. For some of us may have gone like the parable of the lost, the prodigal son, may have gone out on our own, and many of us could be parents or people in this, in this room wanting people to return. I want to tell you the same story about a loving father who is available for you and me here today. I want to tell you about grace defined by Jesus. Let's read the rest of the passage, starting in 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me my share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, port in line, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have, you, have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to them, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and he came to his father. But while he was still a, way, a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and he embraced and kissed his son. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Let's stop there. This is the word of God. When it comes to grace, the first thing we see in verses 11 and 12, we see perfect patience. This is very important for us when it comes to God and understanding the doctrine of grace. He shows perfect patience. The son goes to the father and says, Father, give me my share of the estate, a statement of dishonor. The son is saying, I wish you were dead. The best case scenario for my life would be that you were dead. And it's, comp it's a complicating variable, dad, that you're still alive because you have a lot of wealth. And I know one third of that inheritance based on the law in Deuteronomy comes to me. And I would like that money. And since you're alive, I can't have it. So I regret the fact that you're alive and I wish you were dead. I love your wealth more than I love you. In fact, I would like to take all of my inheritance and leave. That's exactly what the young man does. At that moment, he dishonors his father, he disgraces his father, he disowns his father, and he does the unthinkable. As we see the scene that is being laid out here, the religious leaders would have picked up that statement right away. Who is this kid? How dare he ask such an outrageous question? And Judaism had advice for this type of request. To a son or wife, to a brother or friend, give no power over yourself while you live. And give not your goods to another so that they may ask for them again. To distribute the estate soon would, risk the, would run the risk of losing the entire estate to another, into another's care. Those listening would probably have leaned in just a little bit more to get the exciting details, because we like details, don't we? Especially when someone's going to get punished. 
what was the father going to do? He's going to disown the son, isn't he? He's going to beat him. Do you remember that last beating? Oh, that was wild. He's going to publicly shame him. What did the father do, Jesus? What did he do? Did he do it? But the father gives the young man what he wants. And in so doing, he takes a massive financial loss. There is no way that you can liquidate things quickly for a good price. Money he worked his whole life to acquire is gone. Furthermore, this money that the dad would need to pay his own bills and live his life if he or his, he or his wife got sick, this money would be spent for them. But he liquidates his assets and hands it to his foolish son. He divided the property, grace, undeserved favor or merit. And based on cultural norms, what the, son, what the father should have done was disown his son. But Jesus is sharing in the kingdom that he leads, very important, the Godhead he's a part of, God is slow to anger. And this grace is for our benefit and for God's glory. Here's a little bit of application for us today. We can all recall moments in our lives where we have said or done stupid things. And sometimes in those moments, people call us on it. They come down hard on us. They can give us instant judgment, and they could be justified for doing it. As believers, we have sinned, and many of us carry sin in our lives right now. God, in his authority, could call you to account right now. This moment as I preach, he could call you and say, you owe me for what you've done. But he extends grace, just like the father at that moment. He didn't want, his, he didn't want to let his son go, but he did. Mark Driscoll, in a devotion, he writes this, the son literally turns his back on the father and walks away. And I need us to see this. I need you to see that the dad is handing the son a great sum of wealth. And the son just turns his back and walks away. And I anticipate the father just stood there weeping, just bawling. I, could, I can't even imagine this moment with my kids. I couldn't even imagine just my sons walking out the door, not looking, not looking back. Perhaps even hoping at some point the son would turn and look at him and at least give him a farewell glance. But the son never does. It's not mentioned. Just with a hard heart, he literally just turns away from the father and just walks away. He doesn't turn around, he doesn't respond, he doesn't even make eye contact. In his heart, the father is dead, and, and there he stands, the father devastated. Oh how, the God, oh, how God the Father is patient with you and me. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not, not, not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish. He's putting up with the sin that is in your life that you have not confessed right now. He's putting up with it. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What a scene. What a teaching. Those watching may have wanted the Father to show judgment and show the cultural norms, but Jesus teaches us that the Father is different than the culture God's different than what our society says. He's different from our expectations. The sin in your life right now does not need to be avoided as if God is going to punish you. you know, God will forgive us. Our sins, when we confess our sins to him, when we're honest to him. 
So the father divides his property, and soon after the exchange, the young man gets everything together, and he heads off for a distant land. And what does he do? He parties like it's 1999. It's almost 2000. Let's just party. And he squanders all of his, his dad's wealth on wild living. And this section of the story would appeal to the tax collectors and sinners who are listening because they love to throw parties. And I'm just adding this in, probably wild parties. Many at the scene would relate to how fast money can go when you don't think long term or even tomorrow from a financial standpoint. The son, he took his share, he parties hard, and something he doesn't take account for, a famine broke out. That's like us leaving home with all of this money. Our, our dad just cleans out his bank account and hands it over to us, and we go down to Toronto, into the city, and we buy a condo. We get a car. We go out every night eating. We, st- we, we go drinking. You check out the social scene. You don't save. You just spend. Party, party, party. And it feels like all of these friends, all these new friends around you, they really understand you. They really got your back. They really know who you are. Better than your family. And then, and then there's a turn in the economy, and then all your amazing BFFs, best friends for life, are gone because the money is gone, and you find yourself at rock bottom, out on the streets, begging for food. Disclaimer, I don't believe every person who is homeless is homeless because of this story. <laughs> and I'm not against homeless people. We are, love, we are to love our neighbors, help all those who are near. But this can easily happen to us. The Jewish leaders would have lost their minds at this part of the story. A pig was an unclean animal. The religious leaders would have already casted the son aside at the estate request, but now feeding pigs? You're out. There is no grace for you. You know what you get when you come back home? Shame and a rock off the head. Jesus paints the picture of a dire circumstance that sin produces. Sin is dangerous to us. We like it. We think it's fun but it is dangerous to our soul. Sin can take it all away and leave you hopeless and broken. And many of us have been there. Many of us could be there even now. The son leaving the father is a picture of the autonomy many feel is missing in their lives. I want to do my own thing. I want to be on my own. I want to make my own rules. I can't recount recount how many times I said as a child, I can't wait to be an adult. How many times a day do I say, I wish I was a kid. (laughs) I wish someone would just tuck me in at night. I remember my aunt, every Friday night, we'd have these big, before my grandfather died, we'd had these big, huge parties where all of our family would come every Friday. We'd eat together, kids would be all laughing, joking. My aunt, at the end of the night, would say, would you like to come to my home? I'd say, yes. And this is the only woman in my life, not my mom, but this woman, she would come in every night and pray for me, she would tuck me in and she would kiss me goodnight and she'd tell me she loved me. And I looked forward to Friday nights not because of family but to go to her house for that moment. I felt real. I felt like I was a part of something. And sometimes we want to run away from all those things that we don't think that are that important because we want to do our own thing. And the application for us here is, have you done that? Have you gone your own way only to realize that you can't do it on your own? You feel this burden of guilt and shame from your past. And, and when, 
When you think about it, you really start to concentrate. You find yourself wailing in the mud like the sun. And when you lay your head down on your pillow at night, doesn't Satan want to just tap on your mind and remind you of your past? Does he call you out by your sin? How you have fallen short? How in this moment you better run, you better hide. You better cover yourself with fig leaves because he's going to come and he's going to talk to you and he is not happy. At this point in the story, I believe every person listening judged this kid. There's no coming back from this disaster, and many of us feel that way. There's no coming back from the things I've done. God will not forgive these things. So we use religious activity to try to mask the shame and the guilt. Could there be hope for a person gone this far? Well, Jesus gives us the solution to that very problem in the next part of the story. In verse 17, it's, a, it's an important line. I would underline it. I won't underline it in my brand new Bible that I bought. <laughs> I'm going to keep it, but I'm going to underline it in my other Bible. I'm going to highlight it, put a star around it, circle it. He came to his senses. That means he repented. This son finally understood the result of his actions. He identified them and wanted to turn back. Look at the statement in verse 18. I will set out and I will go back to my father. And I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, against God and you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The young man prepares his speech. How many Christians have I met over 15 years of ministry who have done this kind of thing? told me a variation on that story. I meet people in the mall. I meet people on the streets. I ask them, do you know the gospel? Yeah, I know about God. I used to go to church. I used to sing in the choir. I used to read my Bible, but I don't now. What do you mean you don't now? Well, it's not for me. Lots of people I've heard, they think at the core, I'm not worthy to be called your son or daughter based on my sin. So instead of going back to the Father and asking for grace, they go on hurting, burdened, longing to feel complete. To the person listening right now that I'm speaking to, how many times have you said, I, I want to change? How many times have you said, I'm done with my sin, I want to change, only to go back to that well that leaves you thirsty? How many times has your sin led you back to the habit? And then comes the guilt. Then comes the shame. Your heart is pounding right now as I preach this sermon because you know that life and you may, may think that church attendance is going to fix it. It's not. Grace. Grace is the only way. It is only by grace that you can be saved. It is only by grace that you can be released from this. Church attendance will only mask the guilt and shame, but grace will remove it. Grace will change the situation. God God in his mercy and his love is offering grace for us today. It's all about grace. Sin leads to death, but Christ has made a way for you. This is the goodness of the gospel that we live by. I wonder what the tension was like as Jesus shared this story with the group. I believe at that moment both groups would have been on edge What's going to happen to this kid? 
the religious elite, the father is going to beat him. He's going to scorn him. He's not going to accept his apology. The tax collectors, based on culture, probably thought the same thing. But verse 20, he got up and he went back to his father and he did something. He confessed. He went to make it right. Whatever the consequences would be, he knew the culture and what would be done to him. He should be stoned. He said, I deserve nothing. I deserve to be an outcast. But I'm going to go back and face up and fess up. And that long walk home thinking about what the father would say, what he would do. I can relate to that moment. That long walk as we walk around with guilt and shame in our hearts. Worrying about the consequences of our actions. What will people say? What will my family say? What will my friends say? People I work with. If they only knew, they would hate me. They would disown me. They would fire me. And I think God may think the same. For some reason, we ask questions or we say statements like this. If God only knew what I was doing. God knows what you're doing. If, only, if God knew what I was doing, he would disown me. He would cause curses to rain down on my head. I like the, I like the people who say, I can't step foot in a church because it will burn down. No, it won't. You're not that powerful. Let me give you, if you're listening, if you're hanging off these words, the two most important words in our language. Are you ready? Get your pencils ready. But God. But God. Those are the two most important words in our language, but God. And the second thing that this passage shows is God's prodigious love. Verse 20. His prodigious love. The Father was waiting. The Father was running. The Father was embracing. Verse 20, by, but while he was long, a long way off, his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion. His father was not filled with anger. His father was not filled with hate. His father was not filled with retaliation or abuse. He was not willing to heap shame or point it back in his face or throw it in his face or show a burden. But what did he show? Compassion. This is my favorite point. This is my favorite part of this, this story that Jesus tells. The father ran to the son. He ran to him. Jewish men did not run. This part of the story is a cultural surprise. Normally a father waits to be addressed by the son and to receive some indication of respect before responding. But God's compassion is exceptional. There is so much to unpack in verse 20. The father is waiting. He is watching. This morning when you got out of bed, your feet hit the ground. Before you brushed your teeth, the father was waiting. And he was watching. He watched you get dressed, not creepily. He watched you get dressed, get your family ready, get in the car. And while you were doing that, he was waiting. And he was watching. And as you drove to church, as you got your coffee, as you grabbed your Bible, as you sat down and lifted up your hands and opened up your mouth, the Father was there, he was watching, and he was waiting. And the Father knows every part of your life because he is watching and he is waiting. He wanted his son to return. Oh, how we think that when we hurt people, they don't want us. We play that emotional game. I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. Or on the other side, and I think I'm going to speak to some parents here. This is a tender moment. 
I'm speaking to those who are waiting for loved ones to come home or have been diligently praying before the throne of God for their child to come to faith. You're waiting for them to come home. You're hoping they would walk through the door. You're out getting groceries or you're, you're pumping gas and you see someone that looks like them. And your heart begins to pound. Is it them? Oh, how I've been praying. I long to see them. You pray, God, please keep them safe. Before you go to bed every night, you pray, God, please don't let them die. I want to see them. You long for them to walk through the door. You long to see them, to run to them. Do you get it? Dad saw his son, and he ran to his son. And the son doesn't even get time to say his full speech. He sees dad running like a little girl holding his skirt down the lane. And he sees his face. And it's not hate, and it's not disownment. He's running after his son, and the Bible says that he passionately grabs his son, and he kisses him. The NIV says kisses, but the Greek, it's more like kisses. Lots of kisses. He loves his son. He embraces his son. He holds his son tight. His father is coming for him. What a scene. If that doesn't make your heart pound, that is grace. He is running. He is rejoicing. And the son wants to share, I'll pay you back, dad. But the father yells to his servant, bring the best robe. A covering for my son. He covered Adam and Eve. Jacob gave Joseph a coat of covering. A sign of love over covering. It's covering and protection. Grace is always more than we expected. Verse 22. Extravagant provision. Robe, which is a covering and protection. A ring of authority. Sandals, status and position. Fat and calf, nourishment for the body. The father says, get my son a ring. And a ring in that day was a way of transacting business. Transacting, transacting business. If they saw the ring, they knew what family he was a part of. He says, go get my son a ring. It's like for us today, the son coming home and we, and we say, we got to get you a credit card. We got to get you back on the books. You got to be able to be part of our family again. Get my son a ring. He's part. He's going to need some clothes. He sold everything. He lost everything. We're going to need to bless him legally, financially. We're going to reinstate him as a member of our family. Extravagant grace. He was not expecting that. People in the crowd would say, maybe he, they begin to say, he doesn't deserve that, but that's grace. Grace is undeserved favor. It's undeserved merit. Romans 2.4 tells us that this is the kindness that God shows to us that leads to repentance. He says, get him a ring. Get him a coat, a ring. My boy needs some shoes. My boy has no shoes. My boy needs some shoes. No shoes meant that you were a slave. People who were free wore shoes. By saying, get him some shoes, he was changing his community identity. And God does the same for us. Want some shoes today? God's in the business of covering our feet. Culturally, the young man should have brought a gift to say, I'm sorry, to the father. But in this story, the, f- the boy comes empty-handed. That's the same picture of you and me today as we go to God. We go as sinners with open hands. We have nothing to bring that would cover our debt. But God's grace to us. With his grace, he lavishes on us. 
what we do not deserve. He welcomes us into his family. He picks us up and he removes our chains. He removes our sin and he says, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. I love you. He rejoices saying, for this son of mine was dead, but now he is alive. Let the sheep, like the sheep, like the coin, he was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. This was the message I heard when I was 21, when I, and I was not leaving that building without talking to my heavenly father with open hands. 21 years old, sitting at the back of the church, I heard this story on grace, and I got my butt to the front. I'm sorry I said it that way. But I was so moved by grace, I came right up while the pastor was preaching, and I said, I want this. As we are teaching the foundations of faith, you need to get, you need to get in on this one. You need to know it and understand it and remind yourself daily that we live by grace. 1 John 2, 1, 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's close like this. Maybe you have never un really understood grace and you've been coming to church, singing the songs and discussing the material at night in our DC groups, but nothing has changed. You ask yourself, am I doing this right? How many times have you asked yourself that when it comes to discipleship? Like I'm in ministry 15 years and I still have that question. God, am I doing this right? Could God love me? Maybe this is the moment where you come to God with open hands and you speak to God about your life. I believe this with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I believe this at the foundation and the core of my life, that if we come to Jesus, not playing games with the Holy Spirit and confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. He will show us grace. So as we close in prayer, think about grace. Grace defined as undeserved favor or merit. We don't deserve his love, but the Father is ready to run to you. And you can do this from your seat. Pastor Steve is going to come and lead, the, lead us in one song. And as they lead us, if you have a heavy heart and you're talking to God, and if you feel comfortable with this action, I'm going to ask you as Pastor Steve leads us as we stand, if you're standing there, would you do this with me? I'll be doing it. And if you have sin in your life, if you have shame in your life, if you've been holding guilt, all you have to do is just pray to God and open your hand. That will be the sign. You can do it from here. Maybe you can do it from here. Maybe you want to put your hands. It doesn't matter where you put your hands. But we hold on. We brought stuff to church today. Let's leave it here. Let's not take it back home. For grace is what we don't deserve, but God is here to give it. Let's pray. Father, this morning... We just thank you for this message. We thank you for the doctrine of grace, undeserved favor or merit. God, as we rejoice in you, as we worship you in this last song, God, we, we have hands full. But God, we want to open our hands to you. We want to lay this sin down at the cross knowing Jesus has come for us. He's come and made a way. His death was a was that his atoning sacrifice covered us so that grace could be applied. And I pray today all over this room, every heart that is beating right now, that is speaking to you, God, I pray for forgiveness of their sins. 
I pray that you will release them from shame and guilt. I pray that they would know and understand that they are your child. I pray, God, that you would run to them right now. That you would whisper to them, in this moment, you are mine, and I will hold you tight. I will lavish my love on you. God, will you run to us now as we confess our sins? In Jesus' name, amen. That day, Jesus addressed the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the tax collectors, the sinners, and the women who have been there. And I intentionally left out a key part of the story, the older brother. Please come back tonight for DCs, and I'll tackle the older brother and how we can become cynical and can grow cold of God's amazing grace. But as we close today, if you have opened your hands and your heart to God, can you just slip up your hand for a moment? Let's rejoice. For the Lord does amazing things. His grace is enough. That's what the story does. It rejoices. Let us do the same. We love you. Your pastors will be at the front if you need prayer. Have a blessed day. Amen.